0: So we're just going to read the last two verses right now, and we will read through the entire chapter 28, but we'll be reminded of the point of Acts through the end of Acts. So verse 30 and 31 in Acts 28. Let's read together. He, this Paul, lived there, Rome, two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word as we have so many times through the book of Acts, and we come, Father, humbly, to hear from you as our great teacher. We come for you to hear from you as broken and needy sinners in need of your grace and reminder of your gospel but we also come with hope knowing that you are continuing to work in this world and as you sent your son so many years ago you are continuing to save and build your church even through us pray that we would see that through the the book of acts and the words of luke and by the power of your spirit today in jesus name amen what would you say is the most important part about a story? And it could be any story. It could be a movie or a book, uh, maybe a TV show. What would you think would be the most important part? Would you say it would be the characters? Maybe the, uh, the action and all the drama that happens? Or the themes? I know you English teachers love this question already, right? You love where this is going. Maybe it's the start of the story. There's a lot of very memorable starts to books, right? Or that that moment of truth, that moment, that climactic moment when something great happens in the story. Or maybe it's the end of the story. Now, I'm going to argue this morning that the ending of the story is the most important part. If you disagree with me, that's fine. We can take that up later. But I believe the conclusion of a story tells us what the story is really about. It reminds us of the purpose of the story. It shows us why the story really matters. I mean, that's why in our culture we put such a big emphasis on even the last words of someone's life, right? Because that's the way their story ends. Now, to me, the worst possible ending is to be continued. Isn't that the worst? Now, look, you kids may not know this, but there was a time before Netflix when... When you were watching a movie, or excuse me, a TV show, and you would get to the end of the episode, and it wouldn't wrap things up, and it would say, to be continued, and you had to wait a whole week to figure out what happened. That was, that was killer when you were watching, like, Lost or 24, right? I think I was so much more patient back then. Um, but now it's not. It's, you're watching the story, it says, to be continued. Like, oh, 10 seconds, I'll figure out what happened. Um, it's just not the same way, but it's still, to this day, still drives me crazy. Well, the book of Acts is sometimes frustrating to a lot of people. Because essentially what, Paul, uh, what Luke does through these actions of Paul is he actually gives us an ending that's kind of like to be continued. I mean, Paul's in Rome, he's preaching in Rome, but he's under house arrest. And he's, he's doing ministry, but it seems like he's still bound. And you look at that ending and you go, wait a minute, what happens? Luke, you can't leave us there. What happens to the church in Rome? Do they grow? Do they, they get squashed? What happens with the Jews? Do more churches get planted? And what happens to Paul? I mean, we've spent chapters following Paul through shipwrecks and so many amazing things. Does he actually get to come before Caesar? Is he released? Is he condemned? Is he, is he killed? Look, Look, you can't leave us there. You can't leave us with this to be continued. But I want to argue this morning that This is the perfect ending for Acts. And actually, it's not really a cliffhanger. And it's not really a to-be-continued as it may appear. And the reason why is because the book of Acts isn't about Paul. The book of Acts isn't about Rome. The book of Acts, it wasn't even about Peter and Stephen and Philip. It's not even about us and how we fit into the church or how we can go be the church. No, Luke reminds us of the same thing he told us in the very first words of the book of Acts. Now, if you can remember 85 sermons ago, although we've said it many times since then, Acts 1.1 says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication there is, well, this is the gospel of Luke part two. This is all that Jesus continues to do and teach. That's why Chad said that the book of Acts should really be renamed the Acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit through the work of the apostles to build the church and advance God's kingdom. It'd be a long name for the book, but that's exactly what the book of Acts teaches us. And that's what we've been talking about for the last two years. And again, at the end of Acts, Luke gives us this exclamation point on this theme once again. And there's one thing I want to drive home today because I believe Luke is just showing us this so clearly through this text. And it is this, that Christ, Christ Jesus, builds his church. Jesus builds his church and nothing will stand in his way. Not shipwrecks or snakes or governments or rulers or hostile people or new ideas. Nothing, nothing will stand in the way of our Lord to build his church. And it's that nothing that's going to frame our our way of looking at this text today. So I'm going to split this up into three sections in this narrative. And we're first going to talk about how nothing can hinder the work of God. We're going to get the conclusion of the shipwreck from last week, and nothing can hinder God's work. And then we'll talk about how nothing can compare to the family of God. And then lastly, nothing, nothing can bind the Word of God as Christ builds his church. So let's start in verse 1, with nothing can hinder the work of God. Verse 1 says this, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now if you remember last week, at the end of chapter 27, we just finished with this incredible shipwreck. Paul and his 276 companions were caught in this storm for weeks in the Mediterranean Sea. They were tossed all over the place, and they were despairing and rebelling, and it was just a, a mess. But God was faithful to them the whole time. He sent an angel to remind Paul that he 's going to make it to Rome, and he 's going to save everyone on the ship. and that 's exactly what God does is he guides the ship through this storm right towards this island of Malta, but they don 't get to the island. They run aground on a reef and as the ship breaks up, they abandon ship and they swim to shore exactly as God said they would. And what should have been a five-week trip turned into a four-month ordeal. And now they are on this island of Malta. Now, now what is Malta? Well, Malta is just this small little island in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's about eight miles wide and only 18 miles long. It's very small. And it's actually very close to the island of Sicily. Now, um, for us that are you know, geographically challenged. Um, Think of Italy as that boot, right? Everybody knows Italy is the boot and the boot is kind of kicking a soccer ball. Well, that little soccer ball is an island called Sicily. Big island, right, right at the tip of that boot. And that island is 58 miles north of this little island called Malta. And that's where Paul and his companions are. Let's see what happens there in verse two. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Now Paul or excuse me Luke calls these people natives but when you hear natives don't think like you know loincloths jungles, spears it's not really what's going on here the work that the word that Luke uses is actually the word barbarians which simply means that they didn't speak Greek and so they were considered to be uncultured and kind of uncivilized people kind of ironic, right? If you're not in Chad's Greek class, then you're uncultured and uncivilized, according to Luke. Um, But that's what we have here. These people just didn't speak Greek. And they probably spoke the language of Punic, which is a Semitic language. It's close to Hebrew and Aramaic, but not close enough to really communicate well. Which is interesting because this may be the first time throughout the book of Acts where Paul doesn't share the gospel with these people. Now, maybe he did, and Luke didn't mention it, but there's no record here that Paul speaks the gospel into their life. He does a lot of things, but we don't see that. Now, this is something important to remember, because when we think about Paul's work, we often forget that everywhere he went in the Roman Empire, everybody spoke Greek. So there was no language barrier. there was no difficulty in a lot of those communications and those cultural differences. And in many ways, our missionaries might have a tougher task in this area than Paul. They have to learn a new culture, a new language to be able to communicate the gospel clearly. Oh, remember that when you pray for them. They're taking on a great task. We pray that they would be equipped for that task and that God would work through them in that. Well, they reach the beach. They're exhausted. They're cold. They're wet. This is still November. It's still in the winter, remember? And Luke says that these barbarians, these these natives, showed them unusual kindness. It doesn't mean that they were like jerks and all of a sudden became nice. It, it basically just means that these people were, were incredibly kind to them. They actually are willing to serve these 276 men to care for them for months until the end of the winter. And it all starts with this fire on the beach, doesn't it? They build a fire and care for them so that everybody's warm as they escape this, this shipwreck. And this is the place where disaster strikes. Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, Just when you think that God's plan is, is back on track, right? they just escaped the hardest part, it would seem, this, this incredible storm. And now something else happens that seems to totally hinder God's plan. I mean, a snake bite back then was a death sentence. There were no snake bite kits. There was no you know, hospital nearby. It was a death sentence. And the people knew it. Look how they respond. Verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now their superstitious beliefs come out here. They kind of have this final destination type of thing going on here. And the, the ESV gets it right. Notice they capitalized the word justice. Because the people on the island, they believed that this was this work of this Greek goddess named justice. That Paul had escaped the sea, had escaped, you know, his death, and now this God has come to take vengeance. And so their conclusion he, he must be a murderer. Right? This is this is like instant karma in our world. That's what people say, right? This is instant justice. That's what they were thinking. It's amazing how, how superstitious we can still be today, right? We think we're beyond it, but we're not. And verse five, they changed their mind incredibly quick, quickly. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> this scene is just hilarious. Right? It's so fickle back and forth. It reminds me of, of Acts 14 when Paul heals somebody and the people go, oh, the gods have come down to us in heaven. And Paul and Barnabas, you know, they, they rip their clothes and they, they exclaim, no, we're not God. And Paul seems to, to handle this kind of situation again. I don't know how many times you get called God in your life, but it happens to Paul often, apparently. Um, but Paul, look at Paul's response in this situation. He's incredibly calm, incredibly um, cool in this situation. How can he be so calm? He knows this is a big deal. I think there could be a lot of reasons for that. One, he knows his God. Think of the contrast here between Paul and his God and the natives and their God. Paul knows that his God is not this impersonal, uh, fickle force who's just worried about uh, random acts of justice and doesn't have anything to do with him. Paul knows that his God is just. But he's also good and gracious and sovereign. And he's in charge of Paul's life. Remember in chapter 27, Paul says, This God owns me and loves me and I serve him. Well, Paul also knows his Savior. Paul's not afraid to die. He's come close to death more than almost anybody. And it was written from from Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this is nothing really new for Paul. Paul. I think the bottom line is that Paul knew he was going to go to Rome. He knew Jesus promised it, and this this little snake wasn't going to stop him. So he just knew that it would all be fine. Maybe he remembered some of Jesus' words in Luke 10 that we know, which is his disciples would step on scorpions, be bit by snakes, and they would be completely fine. Now, some people use this text as this warrant to go play around with snakes and to show how good God is. That's not what's going on here. The point here is is the point that Luke's trying to make, which is Paul knows that nothing will hinder God's work. Christ will build his church, Christ will grow his people and develop his church, and nothing will stand in his way. If mobs couldn't do it, and stoning, and jail, and shipwrecks, then a snake is nothing. As many great pastors and missionaries have said over the years, God's people are immortal until their work on earth is done. That's what Luke's trying to say here. And Luke is going to say it one more time through one more miracle. Look at verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting hands on him, healed him. So Luke introduces us to this guy named Publius, who was the chief man of the island, which could mean governor or maybe even literal chief. And he offers Paul some some incredible hospitality, gives him a place to stay, and takes care of him and all of his companions. But then Paul finds out that the father of Publius is actually sick. And Luke doesn't just say sick. Notice the detail again. Luke says fever and dysentery. It seems that Luke is diagnose, diagnosing this, this illness, and Paul is the one healing this. Actually, we find out that this is pretty common on the island. It had a name. It was called the Maltese fever, and sometimes people were sick with this for three years. It would come and go, and it would, we found out later that it was from the bacteria in the goat's milk. But, but look what happened here. Look what Luke says in the very beginning of verse 8. I love this. He says, It happened that the father of Publius was sick. Really, Luke? It just just happened. Right? Just a coincidence. Just an accident. Is that really what you mean? Oh, we know Luke better by now, don't we? No, Luke is trying to say, no, it happened by the sovereign hand of God. This is no accident. This is God's work sovereignly again to bring Luke and Paul into this place to heal this man. You think, well, that's an awful lot of trouble to go through for just this one guy. Well, God's plan's not done yet. Look what else he does. Verse 9. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sell, they put on board whatever we needed. Isn't this amazing that God used this ministry and this unexpected place to heal the father of Publius, to heal all these people on the island, and ultimately to supply Paul and his companions with everything they need to finally get to Rome. God was at work in every little detail, and now this ship is is full to the brim going into Rome, probably the best supplied ship at the end of their journey. I'm sure things like this just made Julius, the Roman centurion who was in charge, just scratch his head and wonder, what is going on here? How in the world is this happening? And this is clearly, again, Paul showing us and Luke showing us, this is God. God once again showing that nothing will hinder his plan. He is faithful. He will keep his word to the end. And as Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That's exactly what's going on here. So let's see the final journey to Rome. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, the island of Malta. A ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. That's another amazing detail, an eyewitness detail by Luke that kind of makes this even more real and also gives us a name to the ship. Verse 12 says, Putting in at Syracuse... We stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived in Regium. Now, this was finally on the mainland of Italy. Finally, they've come to the mainland, the very tip of that boot that we talked about. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There, we found brothers and, we, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, now, at this point, Paul is still a long way off. He's still got 125 miles to get to Rome. But once he's hit the mainland, it's like kissing the ground, like, oh, thank you, Lord. We're here. And then the very next verse, look what Luke says. And so we came to Rome. You know, the Bible has an incredible way of saying the most profound truths in such simple words. Luke is, is so well known for this. In his gospel, when Herod was trying to figure out who Jesus was, Herod says, look, John, I beheaded, but who is this? And you think, you, you beheaded John? How, we, how did we miss that? That's all you want to say about the greatest prophet? That he was just beheaded? Acts 12, Luke says, he killed James, the brother of John, by the sword. The apostle to the Jerusalem church, the leader of that church, he's just dead now? Such massive things in so few words. And Luke does it again. And so we came to Rome. Let's just stop and consider, though, how many promises are fulfilled in that one small line. I mean, Paul has been wanting to get to Rome for years. I mean, Acts 19, when Paul's laying out his travel plans to everybody around him, he says he resolved to go to Rome. And then in Acts 23, Jesus himself appeared to Paul and says, Look, you're going to make it to Rome. Um, You're going to testify for me in Rome. And then last chapter, even on board the ship, Jesus sent the messenger again and said, look, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul says, I long to come to you. I long to see you and to be encouraged by you and for you to be encouraged by me. Makes us think, well, what's the big deal with Rome? Why is it so important to Paul? Why does it take so long and have such a big buildup to get there? Well, remember, Paul wanted to vindicate himself. He was a prisoner at this point. He wanted to make sure that he declared his own innocence. I don't think that was his main priority because he's okay if he just disappears. If he is dead, the gospel moves on. And I think his main priority was he wants to vindicate the gospel. He wants to make it to Rome and show that all these trials, all these buildups will prove that the gospel, the, the Christian faith, is not an enemy of Rome. It's not an enemy of to Theophilus and and to the Jews. It's right out of the Old Testament. And so Paul's been desiring to do this and to preach in Rome. And remember, Rome to Paul and to almost every Jew would be considered the ends of the earth. It It was the hub of the civilized world at that point. And from there, Paul could reach anyone. And just think of all the details, all the amazing things that happened to bring Paul to this place. All the promises that kept Paul through trials and assassination attempts, through mobs and through shipwrecks and so many difficulties, and it just magically happened he ended up in Rome. No, right? No. This is all God's sovereign hand. God fulfilling his promises. And he's at work in every little detail. Through justice and injustice, Jew and Gentile, Roman law, cowardly Roman governors, He used Paul's citizenship and Paul's nephew to warn him. He used a dream, a kind centurion, kind native people and faithful friends. All to get Paul exactly where he wanted him to be. Because again, Christ builds his church. He is sovereign over all of it and nothing will hinder his work. I think there's an important lesson here for the church. A lesson that that I think Acts has been teaching us this whole time There's nothing in your life that just happens. Nothing in our lives that happens out of the sovereign plan of God. Everything happens out of God's hand, out of God's plan, because God is at work, not just in the big things, but even in the smallest details. Because if you believe that you're in Christ, if you're His child, you're found in Him by faith. That was a gift, We're justified by the grace of God through the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We're redeemed. We're we're sanctified by God. And God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just free us from prison and say, all right, see you at the end. No, he walks us through in every single detail, just like he's working through Paul. He's there in every victory and every defeat. In fact, if Acts is any testimony, it seems that God loves to work by bringing victory through defeat. That's his M.O. That's the way that God works. It's always been that way. Just think of the cross. The light of the world by darkness slain. The righteous one suffering a criminal's death. That God would bring life and salvation through death and trials. And that's how he's been building his church through Acts. And that's how he continues to build his church even today. That's why Joseph, even way back in the Old Testament, can say of his scoundrel brothers that you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And Paul can say in Romans 8, for those who love God, all things, not just the big things, not just the big picture, even the little details, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, because Christ is building his church and nothing will stand in his way. Let's talk about the point number two, which is nothing compares to the family of God. Now this is almost a footnote in this narrative, but it's so good and it's shown so much throughout Acts. I can't help but talk about it for a little bit. Nothing compares to the family of God. Let's look at that in verse 14. It says, There, which is still Italy, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Oh, what a blessing this must have been for Paul after this crazy trip. When he's not even in Rome yet, he finally um, steps foot on Italy. He has brothers come to meet him and take care of him and all of his companions for a week And then when he finally gets to Rome, there's even more people coming in to encourage him and greet him and fellowship with him. They came from these two towns that are mentioned, the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns, which are about 10 to 30 miles away. Remember, they're they're on foot. They're not hopping in the car and driving 10 minutes. They came a long way to meet Paul. And what's amazing about this passage is that, that this This situation, this kind of greeting, especially in Rome, is usually reserved for kings and generals coming back from war. That they would come to town with all their prisoners behind them, and they would have this victory march into Rome. And here's Paul, a prisoner, in this victory march straight into Rome. I'm sure, again, Julius and all of his companions are like, what in the world is going on here? Who is this man? Who are these people? And remember, at this point, they don't really even know Paul. All they know about Paul is that he wrote the letter to the Romans to them about three years earlier. The first chapter, he talks about how he wants to go there because no apostle has been uh, planted this church. These are probably men that were there at Pentecost. There when Peter preached and were saved and went to Rome, and this, this church just sprang up. Paul's excited, but they don't even know Paul, and they're giving him this kingly welcome here. And it's amazing because when Paul finally meets the church, do you see what happens? There's incredible unity and joy. The same hospitality that he might experience in Jerusalem or in the many churches he planted. It's almost as if he never even left his home church. I know some of you have experienced this in your own ways, haven't you? Have you ever been on a trip or out of town and you you attend a corporate worship service from another church and You go into the church and you hear the same gospel preached. You hear the same songs, maybe even the same scriptures that you normally hear read. And and you have similar conversations and you start to, to feel this unity and this camaraderie that is just unexplainable. You start to realize that the church is just this one massive family. It's even closer than most natural blood relationships in some ways. And again, we see the beauty of these things in this passage. And we've seen this all the way through the book of Acts. Remember, at this time, family and nationality and government, these things were a big deal. But the church, their unity and their camaraderie and their prayer and care for each other is so much greater than even those great things. It stands out over and over again, even though the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Rich and poor, righteous, unrighteous, teens and grandparents, baby boomers and millennials, all under one roof, proclaiming the same gospel, singing about the same God. Oh, there's nothing else like the church. When you see the unity and the diversity that can only come from changed lives, from resurrected lives by the gospel, it's beautiful, it's a taste of heaven. And we see it on full display here. And that's why in verse 15, Paul thanks God. And he's encouraged. I want to talk about that verse 15 because I I studied this a lot this week. And that verse struck me after reading it a bunch of times a little differently. It says, at the very end of verse, verse 15 says, On seeing them, the church, Paul thanked God and took courage. That seems pretty straightforward. But as I studied it, I started to realize you would expect that to be in reverse. When the church shows up and they see Paul, you would expect them to thank God and them to be encouraged, right? But it's the opposite way way around. Paul is the one encouraged. You know, we often think about how important Paul was to the early church, and rightly so. But we don't often think about how important the church was for Paul, We like to see him as this this independent, self-sufficient, this church planner who's out in front blazing a trail and everybody else is just trying to catch up. That's that's very American, but that's not the way that Luke presents it at all. That's not the way that Luke presents any of the leaders in the book of Acts. No, Paul needs the church. Whether he's traveling with Luke and Aristarchus or whether he has ministry partners to go to the mission field with Barnabas and, and John Mark, Or whether it's just when he comes to a place after a horrible trip and just needs encouragement, Paul needs the church. And so do we. We need the church. Do you believe that? We need to feed on the gospel, the truth that is in God's Word. We need to be reminded of that every single week. We need the sacraments and the fellowship and the means of grace. That's how God grows us in Christ. I find it amazing that when Jesus teaches the disciples how to take communion, he doesn't say, Look, here's how you do communion. Take it a couple times, you'll get the hang of it, you'll figure it out, and then you can just forget it. No, he says, Every time you meet together, do this. The implication is there we forget, we lose hope. We forget our only hope is the gospel and we need the church to remind us of that, to strengthen us of that, to point us to Christ and at times smack us up the side of the head and say, no, your hope is Christ, not that. Do you believe that? Do you believe you need the church? Does your schedule, your relationships, your your calendar reflect that you need the church? Or does it reflect that you're building your own resume? Or maybe your kid's resume for college. Or maybe that the priority is entertainment or relaxation or vacations. Do you really know how much you and I need the church? Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's our job as Christians. That's why God is advancing His church. I love how Kevin DeYoung describes the church. He says, The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the head. A Christian not a part of the local church is just a foreign idea in Scripture. It doesn't make sense because the church is God's tool to make us more like Christ. And we need the church. Well, nothing can hinder God's work. Nothing can compare to God's church, God's family. And lastly, nothing can bind the word of God. Nothing can bind the word of God in verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Now this, this essentially was kind of like the ankle bracelet of the day, right? This is Paul under house arrest. It's really unusual for a prisoner to live by themselves like that. They were in the prison, but Paul was afforded this freedom, maybe because Festus it, or or maybe Julius was so impressed by Paul, but he still had a guard there. These guards would change shift every four hours, so he might have had about six guards per day. And you know Paul took advantage of that, right? You know that when they came in and they proclaimed, Caesar is Lord, Paul's just saying, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So not even when Paul is in chains, when he's bound, is the gospel in chains. He's still preaching. People are still becoming saved. And verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Brothers, "'Though I had done nothing against our people "'or the customs of our fathers, "'yet I was delivered as a prisoner "'from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. "'When they had examined me, "'they wished to set me at liberty "'because there was no reason "'for the death penalty in my case. "'But because the Jews objected, "'I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, "'though I had no charge to bring against my nation. "'For this reason, therefore,' So, as Paul is in the habit of doing, he he gathers the church leaders, the Jews from all the synagogues, and what does he do? Well, he lays out his case, explains why he's in Rome. He, He asserts his innocence once again. But then notice, what does he say? He says, Brothers, he starts the same way that he did through the trials, the same way that he always has, and says, I'm not an enemy of Israel. I'm not an enemy of Rome. My gospel, my hope is the hope of Israel. It's right out of the Old Testament. It's in the resurrected Lord, the Messiah. That's my hope. That's what I want to preach to you about. And we see him say those things, but then you look at their response, and it's kind of weird, isn't it? They say, well, we've never heard of you. We didn't get any letters, any alerts about you. But we have heard of this sect, this heresy, and we'd love to hear more. How is that possible? After all the drama with the trials and, and how much the Jews wanted to kill Paul, how is it possible that they wouldn't even send a letter to Rome? Are they, just, are they lazy? Did they just lose interest? Are they just glad to, to have Paul out of their hair? I don't think that's what's going on. And most likely, they were still in transit now, if you remember, Paul gave the, his, his companions some advice and says, Look, this is a bad time to travel. We shouldn't go. And that resulted in that crazy storm. Well, most likely the Jews stayed in Jerusalem for the winter. And so when winter was over, Paul was already on these islands trying to make it to Rome. They started way back in Jerusalem. They're still trying to get there, most likely. And so, by the sovereign hand of God, he's given Paul this fresh start, it seems. Even as a prisoner. So that he can be heard without the influence of the Jews. And you would think that at this point, man, this is the point where we see revival. We see something massive happen. This is what we've been building towards. Look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. And trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul do, does what he does best. He preaches Christ. Straight out of the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. It's all about this kingdom of God. Which is amazing because the kingdom of God isn't mentioned that much in the middle of Acts. Just right at the beginning and right at the end. Like this, this idea of an inclusio just wraps it all together. This is what it's all been about. And Paul is preaching from dawn until dusk, from cover to cover. It just blows me away that we don't have that sermon, right? We don't have what Paul said there. I think I know why, because if we did, no one would ever preach again. Would you come to speak at our church? No, just read that. That's what we would do. But in God's providence, we don't receive that sermon. But we do see what happened, verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. No revival, no no outpouring of faith, no amazing event. We just have the same old story. The Jews were divided. Some believed and some didn't. We've seen this a hundred times throughout Acts. After a whole day of preaching and teaching, you would expect something great. Great. But then Paul helps us out here, and he actually explains what's going on. Look what he says in verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. This is what ran them off. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Luke and Aristarchus would have responded at this point. They've probably heard Paul give this sermon a hundred times. And when Paul says, in closing, I want to quote from Isaiah. They want to jump out of their seat and go, no, Paul, don't go there. That's a bad idea. We made a lot of progress today. We're divided. That's what we would do, wouldn't we? Let's shake hands. We'll agree to disagree and move on. Paul can't leave it there. He can't settle for them to be in this gray area. He pushes them towards decision. And what is Paul doing here? Well, he's actually doing two things, I think. One, he's, he's explaining what's happening. I mean, every town he went into, every synagogue he preached at, this is exactly what happened. The Jews were divided. Many rejected the gospel. And so he went to the Gentiles, and there was this great outpouring of faith. The same thing happened to Jesus in his ministry, right? He preached the gospel. The Jews were divided. And Jesus quoted the same passage. Paul's saying, look, this isn't an accident. This doesn't just happen. This is what God is doing. Nothing can hinder his word being preached. If it's rejected by the Jews, the Gentiles will receive it. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, all right, in conclusion, everybody stand up. I'm going to smack you across the face and say, you're rejecting God. He's actually giving them a warning. And through the Spirit is also warning us about rejecting God ourselves. Saying basically, are you really listening? Are you really trying to see? I don't think that you are. You're hearing, but you don't want to listen. You see the truth, but you just ignore it. You just suppress it. You're stubborn and hard-hearted and rebellious. You don't want to recognize what's right in front of your face and repent. And so you push it away. And since you push it away, we're going to go to the Gentiles. Gentiles. And sadly, they don't listen. And verse 25 says they walk away. Even though the, the clearness of what God is doing is right in front of their face, as Romans 1 says, they're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. That is not what I expected. After building to Rome for so long, I would have expected this massive revival. But the amazing thing is Luke doesn't end there. You would think, well, looks like the gospel's done. The church is over. God has stopped building his church at least to the Jews. Look at verse 30. He, Paul, lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. There's our to-be-continued. You know, it's amazing to know that the sources throughout church history tell us that this wasn't the end for Paul. That Paul eventually did appear before Nero. He was released. He actually ministered for another four or five years before he was arrested again. And then that time he was beheaded. And during that time he wrote a couple of his uh, epistles to the, the pastors, to Timothy especially. Um, But Luke is trying to show us what's going on in this event. And he actually gives us a a massive clue right there with the very last words of Acts. The last words are the most important part. And the ESV gets, gets us right. Look at the last verse. It says, Paul was preaching with what? All boldness and without hindrance. That without hindrance is one word in Greek. Unhindered. That's what Luke wants to leave us with. Even though Paul is in in jail, it seems like the church is, is just kind of floundering out there. God's word, God's proclamation, God's work is still moving on. It's unhindered. Nothing's holding it back. Even while Paul is in prison, he's preaching to the Roman guards. He's free to have people come see him and preach the word to meet with these people in Rome. And he's free to write the letters to the churches. During this time, he writes Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon, those letters that fed the church for years and are still feeding us today. And the kingdom of God mentioned at the very beginning in Acts 1 is now mentioned at the very end of Acts 28 in this divine exclamation point to say God's kingdom is still going. The gospel is being preached. Christ is building his church, and he won't stop. That's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy, I'm suffering, bound with change as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Luke's telling us, no, this is not the hint. Christ will continue to build his church. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we still see the gospel advancing. We're still sending out missionaries. We're here because the gospel has advanced westward to us. By God's sovereign hand, by the work of Christ. And even though Acts 28 ends, you don't know what the real ending of Acts is? It's the very last chapter in the book of the Bible. It's Romans 21, or excuse me, Revelation 21. You don't have to turn there, but let me tell you that in Revelation 21, Satan is destroyed. All sin is wiped away. God's people are gathered from the corners of the earth. Every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping at the throne of God as Jesus rules and reigns for all eternity. And in verse 3, It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's where it all ends. And Christ will build his church until that great day. Nothing will hinder his work, his people, his word. This is our great hope, this is our great peace. That we're not just redeemed and set free. We're redeemed as part of God's kingdom. As part of God's people. And churches like Sovereign Grace can come and go. Nations and rulers can come and go. But God's church will never fail. Because Christ is the one who builds it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what great hope you give us here in this book. What a joy it is to know that You're sustaining not just our own lives but the church throughout history. You're growing your church. You're bringing people in that would never be together in real life from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship you and to glorify you so that you will be exalted at the end. God, may we look forward to that day in faith. May it encourage us and strengthen us that the work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection are just the beginning of your work and may we devote ourselves to the development and the building of your church as you build it through us through your spirit and through the proclamation of your word we pray in your son's precious name amen